Today we'll be discussing comedy specials that beg the question, are these even comedy? And we'll be discussing ADHD in adults. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing Bo Burnham's new Netflix comedy special, Inside, and comedy specials that may not really be comedy. And we'll be discussing ADHD in adults and the abuse of stimulants in university and college age students. So, Ali, before we get started, I want to ask you a question I've been thinking about. Have I been abusing stimulants? That's how I get through this podcast, bud. It's the <laughs> okay. only way. But that's not that we encourage this at all. No, we. So didn't. you're still in Newfoundland, actually. You've been filming your TV show, Turner. To call it my TV show is a bit much. The dog does the heavy lifting. It's Turner and Hooch adjacent, is what we can call it. I do not call it that. So this show is called Hudson and Rex. This thing, I think. If I don't have the exact numbers right, I'm only off by a little bit. It ran for 17 years in Europe. I think it was like an Austrian-Italian co-pro or something. It ran for 10, then got picked up for another seven. And it's had, whatever you want to call them, I guess, reboots in a number of countries. Seven or eight different countries have picked it up, and Canada was one of them. I'll tell you something. People like you and I, i.e. people who are normal around dogs and don't need to like lick the face of every dog we see. You know, you're like, okay, I kind of see the appeal, but man, people who are like dog lovers, when they go to, you know, these kind of conventions and stuff for Hudson and Rex, there's like lineups, 100 people deep to meet the dog. Nobody cares about Hudson. The show is called Hudson and Rex. It's all Rex. But are these conventions like just for the Canadian version or are you talking about in each country where it's a hit? Probably in each country, but I think this show is uh, broadcast in Europe as well. Hudson and Rex goes around the world. It's huge. It, in France, it has millions of viewers. Wow, wow. That's good. Have you been doing anything interesting in Newfoundland? To sum up what I've been doing, eating has been maybe my main focus. Dude, I in January of this year, I subscribed to Vanity Fair. Okay, I wanted a bit more of the pop culture focus there. And I used to enjoy reading magazines. I subscribed to The Walrus, great magazine, a little bit more political focus. And then New York Magazine. I'm not even sure why I did, but I just, I like the articles in New York. I maybe read one magazine since January. So I brought a pile of about 30 magazines with me. And I was like, I'm reading all of these. I'm away for 18 days and I'm reading every single one of these magazines. And? How many have I read? Mm, I would say half of one. I would, you should have guessed zero. Oh, man. That's, a, that's also quite a bit of weight to bring around. You know you can get magazines on your tablet or phone, right? I know. I know. I'm going to just leave these behind here. I can't. No, nah, to probably take two or three. We'll leave them in the lobby at least. If you leave them in the room, yes. they'll probably be thrown out. But maybe yeah, in exactly. the lobby of the yeah. hotel. Well, that's anyway. people like in COVID, huh? These random magazines touched by some random person we don't know to now be touched by other people. I mean, the gesture is nice. We'll see how we do it. Ali, what I want to talk to you about today is about Bo Burnham. So he has this new comedy special. So People who don't know Bo Burnham, he came up about 10 years ago or so as a YouTube comic when he was a teenager. He would post these funny songs on YouTube. But I never heard of him actually till very recently. He became very famous with that. He's had comedy specials. He's done touring. And then I guess maybe about five years ago, he basically said he was having too much anxiety and panic attacks and he decided to not tour anymore. He then moved into directing. He directed this movie, Eighth Grade. Have you seen this movie? Not only have I seen this movie, I have loved this movie. And I interviewed Bo Burnham on CBC Radio Q. and sat across the table from him back in the days when you could have guests in studio and talked about this movie with him. It was a great chat. I'm a big fan of his and I'm a big fan of this movie. Me too. I, that movie is great. I don't know. I mean, he's seen, I don't know anything about him. Seems like a nice enough guy. The only disappointing thing about Eighth Grade 
I tell my daughters to watch it. Yeah. One of my daughters in eighth grade at the time, what are their thoughts on the movie? They don't care for it. I'm like, what? There's no pleasing you people. There's, this is you. There's no pleasing you people. No, but that performance, that actress, I wish I had her name top of mind. Phenomenal. Very well written, very well directed. It, it was really good. And then he was in the movie Promising Young Woman, which we've talked about earlier on a couple months ago on the podcast. And he plays the love interest of the main character in the movie. I won't spoil what happens later on in that movie for you. But he was good in that. I actually that was the, I didn't actually connect that he was the same person who directed eighth grade when I, I just thought he was an actor. I'm like, who's this guy? He's pretty good. And I looked it up. I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is who this guy is. So that's how I kind of really started to realize who he was. And so he has several comedy specials, mainly on Netflix. And he just released this one inside. So inside the premise is he had this comedy special that he was supposed to be doing, and then the pandemic hit. So what he decided to do was in a very enclosed kind of almost studio kind of apartment is film this special. And he filmed it, wrote it, directed it, and edited it. He did everything. There was no crew. There was no outside help. Yep. Yeah, and then he kind of released it. It's a bit of a mishmash of different things. It's him talking, doing very, a very small amount of stand-up, a very small amount, but then it's a lot of songs. He's known for kind of musical songs, these comedy songs, and then it's also just some skits and some just his kind of reactions to everything that's been going on because he filmed it over a year and a half. Maybe we'll start with what each of us think about the special, and the reason I want to bring this whole thing up is because... When you think about a comedy special, comedy special, in my opinion, is, oh, you're watching a live performance of a comedy show, right? Like, so we're watching Aziz Ansari, Chris Rock, and these guys just kind of watching them perform at some venue. But that's not what this is at all. Over the past several years, there have been a lot of these comedy specials coming out, and you're like, is that a comedy special? It's being labeled as a comedy special. It's picked up by Netflix or HBO and it's put on like the next big comedy special. But this isn't what we usually expect. So that's why I kind of want to talk about these. And often it gets labeled as comedy specials because the people performing are comedians or comedic performers. So it makes sense if you have to put a label on something to be, well, it, it is this comedian doing this thing. And yeah, people have struggled with it quite a bit over the last few years, more when it's a woman, especially when it's a queer woman, but that we'll get to that. But yeah, tell me about your thoughts about Bo Burnham. First of all, I do think he's extremely funny. I think he's very clever. I like the special. I thought it was interesting. Like I said, it's not a traditional comedy special, but was I entertained? I was. Did I laugh? For sure. I, I watched it by myself and I showed my wife a bunch of clips from it because I thought it was so funny. And I think it's very interesting. I want to talk about some of these other specials I've seen over the past couple of years in a second, but it's not all funny. That's probably the main thing that will differentiate this and some of the other ones we'll talk about from a traditional stand-up comedy special. There is a critique. He has a lot of critique for the internet and social media. A lot. I mean, it weighs on him a lot. And it's so ironic, of course, because he would not be famous if it wasn't for social media and the internet, right? He would be, I don't know, doing whatever in Massachusetts where he grew up. But he is a multi-millionaire, very well-known comedian, solely because of the internet, at least initially. Maybe that's why he's moved off into other things like directing and acting now, because he's trying to broaden himself from this internet celebrity. And he he's very critical of it. Lots of things we've we've all said before, you know, like nobody has to hear your opinion about everything all the time, the need to create content all the time, and clearly the pressure that puts on him and the evils of the internet. The fact that he has a song, you know, the internet is everything all the time. That's resonating with a lot of people because they're like, yeah, it's, it's crazy, you know, and maybe there should be limits on this. One of my friends, uh, Brad, always says this. He's like, in 30 years, people are going to look at social media. I mean, other people have said this too, but he said to me most recently. In 30 years, people are going to look at social media like we look at smoking. They'll be like, what? You just let people smoke everywhere? You let pregnant women smoke? You, you know, this is craziness. People are going to be like, oh, you let your preteen on social media? Like, didn't you realize the harmful nature of this? In hindsight, we're going to see all these things later on. And so I think Bo Burnham talks a lot about that. So anyway, I really liked it. Yeah, and Bo Burnham, and I would encourage anybody who's intrigued by Bo or a fan of this or other work to listen to that interview, and not because I interviewed him, but because I got to learn a lot about him. And he could qualify as an expert on internet hate. 
And it's interesting that you brought up this, you know, pre-teens. I mean, he was he was in his teens. He was 15 years old making videos from his bedroom, not because he had any desire to be a viral sensation. It was just something he wanted to do. He's an incredibly creative person. And he got subject at age 15 to hate that most adults wouldn't be able to handle, you know, a fifth of that or a tenth of that. It was like a lot of love and a lot of fans, but it was also really and when the internet hates it hates with a vengeance it's like i hope you die and you're not your life is not worth living and stuff that can really bring so when he speaks about the anxieties and he speaks about you know uh, mental health issues i trust that it's coming from a very very genuine place in fact i've read some interviews with him where he is talking about how he's been received by the traditional comedy stand-up world you know and they're like well you didn't pay your dues you didn't pay your dues he's like you don't think I paid my dues? You guys get like heckled maybe every once in a while. Somebody writes a bad review of your comedy show. He's like, how would you like 30,000 negative comments out of one video? You know, and you read them all and they all stick in your head. He said that in the interview too. It very stuck with me for a long time, that comment. Absolutely. He's kind of paid his dues in terms of that. Yeah. And so this special, you know, I really loved it. The amount of work, you, again, you want to talk about paying your dues compared to like a performer who yet works all year long and does rooms, does rooms, does rooms. And then your agent, your publicist, your manager book you into a large venue. And then you just come on, maybe you do one rehearsal and then you just perform. That seems relatively easy compared to what this guy had to do. You can see at the beginning, he's making these sort of measurements and like preparing everything for the editing and the re-editing. And you see like this creative process with, and again, he's used to having zero feedback, right? Because when you're on YouTube, you put something out, you hope for the best, but you get that either the lighting, the sound, the editing, the timing, and you can see in his beard growth, like the amount of time it was taking between things. And then the content itself, I really found wonderful, but there was something unsatisfied in me as I watched it. And then I read some of the articles about it and I was like, that's what it is. I know what it is. And it doesn't actually bother me that much, but there was one thing I just couldn't articulate. And on slate.com, there was an article. I don't have the author's name here, but this author was saying that, look, it's that old based on a true story bonus that you get in a show, right? So I mentioned Hannah Gatsby's Nanette. If you have not seen it, I encourage you to, I will not ruin her first story, but that whole show is braced on the premise that you believe that first thing that happened to her, and that did happen to her. Mike Birbiglia, one of my favorite comedians of all time, one of the most influential comedians in my life. His special, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and the new one, it's called The New One, those are also based on some real premises, real feelings, real issues of his. And to find out later that that's not real would really cheapen the experience. You don't even think about that. James A. Castor is another person who this author mentioned. You know, this latest special is about some real mental health stuff that he's going through compared to some really goofy stuff that he's done in the past. The issue here is that knowing how much money and comfort that Bo Burnham has and knowing that that's not his apartment, he has a partner, he has a home, he has, you know, uh, lots of money. There was a, a slight bit of falseness to it all. And it was like a character playing a character within a character because at one, you know, a lot of people reached out to Bo Burnham and were like, are you okay? Because his mental health issues were on full display also in this, but that's him choosing to portray that and edit it and all that, right? That's still his choice where he's hanging his head wondering. And I'm sure there were many, many hours over the months that he filmed this where he was plagued by how do I make this funny? How do I film this? How but as far as... That's not his life is what I'm trying to say. But the anxiety and the reasons to worry about him, as we said, he knows all about that. He knows all about being abused basically on the internet. So he's spoken very candidly about his own health issues. So those are there, but that home, which may, he makes look like his own, is not his home. Right yeah. Now. So this was filmed in actually the guest house behind his house. I mean, that's how rich he is. He has a house and he has a small little guest house for when people come to stay. They have their own kitchen, bathroom and things like that. This is a common criticism. Uh, you hear a lot in, for a lot of different things, but that's just the way any sort of storytelling is. It's never entirely 
truthful. And I'll give you an example. When you read, say, Angela's Ashes, you know, a, a very famous biographical book, and you read it, and you're like, oh, that, that's that's crazy. There's all that happened. And I'm not saying none of that happened. But when you read a biography or autobiography in that case, or a memoir, I guess I should say, and you read, and there's conversations between people, right? And it's like, you know, this person says this in quotation marks, said ma, and then I replied like this in quotation marks. That is clearly false. Ali, I can't remember our last conversation word for word, and it probably happened two days ago. And so how in the world can this guy who's writing Angel's Ashes remember Frank McCord? How could he remember, you know, when he was a child growing up in Ireland? Like, it's just not possible. There is a level of artifice in that. And even in documentaries, which we say, okay, documentaries are nonfiction. But as you said, it's what you choose to include and not include when you do it. The editing of a thing is what makes it true or not true. And we know that with reality shows and things like that, they they edit things in a way that makes somebody out to be the evil person or whatever. And so I guess, true, yeah. Is he rich? Yes. Does he live in this house full time? No. Do I believe that he probably most days went to work in that house working on this special? I do. Do I think he was stressed about finishing the special? Absolutely, I do. I've never done this, Ali. I mean, my deadlines are often self-imposed for like a paper I'm writing, like a scientific paper. But you've had a deadline for a book. You've had a deadline to get your one-man shows kind of finished before you took them on the road. You're reading Yes And, which is Amy Poehler's book. You know, you can see how much she hated writing the book in it and the stress of having a deadline. It's unpleasant to read the book, actually. I don't really like that book because of that. So all this to say, I think he had that stress. I think he does have anxiety. I think he probably did have depression as we all did to a certain extent over the past year and a half. I don't know. I, I just, I read those critiques and I'm like, okay. And listen, it's speaking to a lot of people, as you said, you know, apparently there is, it's not like a backlash, but the reaction I should say to his special is like, this resonated with me so much. I broke down in tears in some of the last few songs. The last, some of the last few songs are not actually comedic at all. And you're trying to process what's going on with him. And, and you listen, if something speaks to you, the veracity of it, I don't know. That doesn't really bother me. This is where I'm at. I came to terms with it because of exactly what you're saying, that he has experience with all these things. Does he go back to his own, you know, more comfortable home after he's done with this? Too? Yes. I think I struggled a little bit with, like this author in Slate was saying, this writer was saying, based on a true story, right? Is this based on a true story? And I came to terms with the fact like, yeah, it is. Because these are true experiences, as you say, that this man, Bo, has had and is having. So I came to terms with it. But in watching it, and I'll tell you the other thing that I was kept in the back of my head as I watched it, I could not escape the amount of hate that Hannah Gadsby's Nanette got when it came out. And I was like, ah, oh, this feels like she's a woman and she's queer. And had she not been either of those two things, it really like made that so blatantly obvious to me in my mind. And, and you know, that's not Bo's fault. That's not on him. But I couldn't get that out of my head as I was watching it. So that was the other special. I, I mean, there's other ones I, I want to talk to you about as well. But that was the other major special from the, I think it was released in 2018. So Hannah Gadsby, it's, it's such an interesting story with her, right? As you said, she's this female queer comic, releases a special Nanette. And she, it's again, a very atypical comedy special. And then when that came out, a lot of criticism, is this comedy? Is this just a one-man show, a one-woman show? Is it a TED Talk? What is this? Because what what happens is she starts with this story and she kind of interjects jokes and then she, again, we don't want to ruin it, but she goes back to that story and tells you more about what happened and what really happened. And then she does something which she kind of says, you know, and a lot of the critic reviews on that, which were very positive at the time, say, which is she kind of explodes or blows up the idea of comedy because her idea is, right, comedy is tension and release. That's what it is. You build up tension and you release it with a joke, right? That's, I don't think that's all comedy, but that's how she frames stand-up. I don't know what you, like, actually, I'm curious what you think about that. That's how she frames it. I can get back to what happens in the special, but do you agree with that, that that's what stand-up is? I mean, I don't know if it's that at its core, but at the very least, that is a critical element of it, for me anyway. I mean, some comedians, it's just a constant sort of rant or crazy rhythm. You know, if I think of Dom Herrera, it's like it's you get into this rhythm of this comic. So there's no time for tension release. So it's not it's not for everybody. 
Yeah, like Robin Williams is like that. Uh, even your friend Dave Marhej, who uh, is a hilarious guy, like he is is just so quick. You don't have. I agree with you. You don't have time for that sometimes. But assuming that's the way she frames comedy, which is fine. And then what she does in the special is she creates tension by this story, which is actually quite a horrific story of what happened to her. It's horrible. And then she does not do a joke after. And she lets the audience sit with it and basically says the audience is complicit in when a comedian gets up on stage and makes fun of themselves. That's the other big premise she has is stand-up comedy is a lot about self-deprecating humor. But when you're doing that and you're basing it on horrible things that's happened in your past and that's your way of dealing with it, the audience is a bit complicit in laughing off these horrible things. That's kind of her premise. And so it, it kind of ends like in this big, like, oh, okay. Like, and then she basically says she's quitting comedy for this reason, because she cannot continue the self-deprecating humor because it's not conducive to her dealing with this trauma in the past. And that she feels this audience is complicit with it. That's basically what happens in the special. Sure. And I think a lot of her comedy throughout her life had been self-deprecation. And she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I have allowed so many people to make fun of me. And rather than stand up to them, I go ahead and make more fun of myself, right? So to me, Nanette, for me, I, I teach a comedy class, as we've mentioned, it's required viewing. Because laugh or don't laugh, it is a beautiful piece of work. To watch this exercise on stage and somebody go through this sort of catharsis and self-awareness and like, as you say, bringing the audience in and their audience is like, what happened there? I don't know. Like I haven't even been, a, I think it's called Douglas, her next special. I almost don't want to ruin Nanette for myself and watch Douglas. And I don't want to be the guy's like, yeah, it wasn't as good as Nanette because I'm not sure how something can be. She got back into comedy. She was actually going to quit. And then the success was so crazy. Uh, she was like, now I'd be stupid too. You know, this is dumb. That's exactly what happened. So she's like, she's like, she quit comedy and then she became more successful than she could have ever imagined in comedy because of her quitting comedy. And so there's actually a good, I haven't watched Douglas either. It's on my to-do list, but I watched a TED talk, which she gave kind of in between Nanette and Douglas. And it kind of explains what happened and how she moved from this, from quitting comedy to actually going back into comedy. That TED talk is quite well done and it, it kind of explains this mindset and what happened with her during that time. One more thing about that is also that the reason that I appreciate Nanette so much is because I have been, since 2016, I had this this solo show, Muslim Interrupted, and I had to test. I talk about 9-11, it's a defining moment in my life, and you test that with the audience. And so you go into 9-11 and you go deep into it. You'd want to bring people back to that memory if they have it, the vivid memory of that day. And I learned that you can go too far in and you can go too far and sit in 9-11 so, so far that it takes another 15, 20 minutes for people to laugh again. And that's where you realize, okay, I was not able to break the tension and create that laugh. So I have to spend less time on it or I have to get less deeply into it. I have to, so I know that exercise. Also, I know the exercise, you can't bring that 9-11 story to a comedy club. It has to be in a theater. It has to be where you're performing your own thing. And... So I know this world of like, is it comedy? Is it not comedy from certain chunks of my hour and 20 minute show? Yeah. I mean, look, it's up to the audience to decide in the end. I don't think we should be the final arbiters, but there is a lot to be enjoyed and derived from shows like this. You know, for me, it's like always laughter was very, very important, but if it's not to Hannah Gatsby, laughter is not the key tension release and like, you know, revelation and exposition, if that's more important. I don't think we should be sitting here saying like that. You're not comedic. That's not. Comedic. Yeah, I know. I agree. And you just give me some ideas of other ones. I think there's maybe you can consider these like a continuum, right? And so there's a traditional comedy special, right? The, the typical standup. And then you move things in a certain direction, maybe towards something that's totally not comedy. And I can give you a couple examples. So like Hassan Minaj's Homecoming King, which I love, that one of my favorite things I've seen in the past five years. That is a relatively a comedy special, but it's more of a one-man show, in my opinion. And because he ends up telling this story that about his prom date, which he weaves throughout, and he weaves, you know, experiences with 9-11, his family as immigrants, and kind of weaves that into it. But it's still maybe more on the side of a traditional comedy special. And then there's two that I think about a lot, which is Chris Rock's Tambourine and Patton Oswalt's Annihilation. And the reason I bring those two up is 
By the way, Chris Rock's Tambourine, directed by Bo Burnham. Oh, no kidding. So, I didn't yeah. know that. And that had totally escaped my mind over time. Yeah, it's only when I was reading about Bo Burnham the other day after I watched Inside. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that he directed it. And then I kind of left it. So the reason why I find those comedy specials very interesting, they're actually not terribly funny, especially Chris Rock's one. Compared to his previous work. Compared to his previous specials, which are like, you know, classics. And Pat Oswalt is pretty funny, but, you know, they both are dealing with some something very serious in each of those ones. For Chris Rock, it was the dissolution of his marriage. Also known as a divorce. Yeah. And uh, Patton Oswalt, uh, you wouldn't wish that on anybody, man. The death of his wife. And ha- and he talks about how he had to tell his daughter hmm. about his wife passing away and how he had to wait till she came back from school because that was like, he didn't want to tell her in the morning and then she had to go to school. And it's just crazy. It's the reason I haven't watched it. I'm a fan of Patton Oswalt's and I, you know, it's one of those on your to-do list, but every day you're like, is today the day I watch one of the most heart-wrenching things I could ever imagine in my life? Nah, I'll put it off till tomorrow. And now we've been like a couple of years. Chris Rock's is very interesting. I suggest everybody watch it. These are also ones I might suggest for your class because it's how you weave in these serious subjects. Chris Rock is very interesting because Patton Oswalt, it's a horrible tragedy that happened to his life. He had really no part in it. And I think it kind of came out later on, especially in the documentary series that was made on Patton Oswalt's wife's book that she was working on. She probably was addicted to prescription pills. And and, and I think Patton Oswalt's pretty honest about that, but he didn't really have a role in this. But of course, Chris Rock has a role in his marriage blowing up, mainly because he cheated on his wife. It's interesting looking at, because you can see Chris Rock thinking in his mind that he's trying to deal with this and process this on stage, which is, you know, he's a stand-up comedian by trade, so it makes sense he wants to do that. But he doesn't really take ownership in that. And it's very interesting seeing that because it's kind of like a psychology class on display of someone who's kind of taking responsibility for what he did, but isn't really. Yeah, it makes you feel like, uh, I remember when I watched it, I was like, is he still processing? Is he still trying to get out the post-relationship therapy? Is it not fully resolved? Or is this where he, this is the bed he he lies in now? Because it was a little unimpressive, the fact that he didn't take full ownership. Because I think in this situation, you have to go, uh, and Pat Oswald does this, you have to go all in. You have to go in and talk about the tragedy and grief of your situation. That's how you, if you're going to put this whole thing together, and that's certainly what Hannah Gadsby does. And Hassan Minaj, to a certain extent, though, I, I would argue that, you know, even though what happens to him is sad, it's not tragic like what happened to these other people. But Chris Rock doesn't do that, and I think it's because of what you're saying. I don't think he's fully processed his role in his marriage. I wondered if it was that, and I also wondered if, you know, these legendary specials that he's had that have moved the needle in such significant ways in the comedy landscape, if he was like, my people aren't ready for me to go this deep. My audience won't go with me. To Maybe it was something like that, or it's his own reluctance, or it's him, you know, imposing that on his audience. But anyway, yeah, he certainly didn't go all in. Obviously, all these things, I think there's a role. Like, I wouldn't say you want to watch Patton Oswalt's Annihilation. It is still funny in the end, and he obviously tries to end things on a positive note, but it is, it is sad, and that's not what people always go to the comedy. So you can see why some of these definitely are not your traditional comedy specials. There's also Tig Notaro Live, where she talks about her cancer diagnosis. There are examples of this, and you know, I think in the best examples, it's the comedians trying to process and deal with and move forward with what happened in their lives and using the special as the vehicle for that. Totally. And just to wrap up on this, I think we have to be a little bit more flexible than ever on what, you know, comedy is. And I think as stand-up comedians, you know, I speak on behalf of stand-up comedians everywhere right now, which maybe I shouldn't do, but I think you know, we've had to go through that over the last five to 10 years where somebody was on YouTube, never seen the inside of a comedy club, never toured, done these things that as stand-ups were like, well, you have to, come on, you have to have toured. You have to have done openers, hosting, you have to headline shows. You have, that's how you're a comedian. And we watched people say they're a comedian. They've never left their basement. And I think it's a struggle for a lot of comedians. I think a lot of of them are probably still going through it. I have forced myself to open my mind to the definition of what makes a comedian, 
what makes an entertainer. It's helpful. It's good for my mental health to be much more accepting. And because of that, I'm very keen to welcome all these types of shows in as comedy. Now, if you didn't laugh, that's all right. There was stuff that was absolutely 100% stand-up comedy by a stand-up comedian that I also didn't laugh at. I didn't say like, that's not comedy. I just said, I didn't like that. That wasn't funny. Now, if you are a regular listener, you know that we have already discussed ADHD. We have discussed it in kids, also something you see on a regular basis that you diagnose quite frequently. Today, we're going to discuss a very necessary part two, which is ADHD in adults. This is a subject, fortunately or unfortunately, near and dear to my own heart and area of interest because I am 100% sure that I have ADHD. When you go to the DSM, people know the Diagnostic Systems Manual or what? The, I don't know. It's called the DSM. It's a big book. It's the big doctor's book. We're at the DSM-5 now, I believe. And you go on the checklist. Every single condition has a checklist. If you have the following, you may have ADHD. Checking off a lot of boxes. DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Just so you know, that's what it is. You've been perusing that in your spare time. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't like a good... <laughs> that's what I put in my suitcase when I travel. Where's my DSM, damn it? Have you kids been playing with it again? Your kids put in 30 magazines instead of the DSM-5. <laughs> what? They pranked you. Okay, so... <laughs> so, okay. Well, basically, I'd like to start background origin story of this and talk about what ADHD looks like in adults and uh, what the lay of the land is there. If you look at kids, about one to two thirds, okay, of kids, so 40 to 60% of kids who had ADHD will have persistence of symptoms into adulthood. So they say it's about three to four to 5% of adults will have ADHD. Gosh, it feels like a lot more. As a guy who's a comedian and around, you know, sort of, these creative people, it really feels like it's 40%. You have a selection bias, I think, in terms of the people who – because so the symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity are less obvious. So, you know, you may not see people who can't sit still at the dinner table, right? Like your friends can sit still. The impulsivity isn't like physical behavior, like touching things and things like that, but it's the people who are always interrupting you, right? Or the people who are saying things and you're like, why would you say that? Why would you say that without thinking, right? All, we can all think of examples like that. So that's the impulsivity and inattention may be more prominent. Okay. And they often have problems with what's called executive functioning. So planning, organizing, right? The people who are classically disorganized. And I'm not saying, Ali, that it's hard for me and you to coordinate our taping times for the podcast at all. I'm not implying no, that. Not? Don't okay. think that. But executive function, this is the way I explain it to people. The simple example is in little kids, right? We live in Canada where you have to dress up in the winter. You can't just go outside. A little kid who has a problem with executive function has a problem with planning, right? So they're getting ready to go outside and they put their boots on first. And then you're like, no, actually, it's so cold outside. You need to wear snow pants, right? And snow pants go on first. Then you put your jacket on, then you put your boots on. If you put your boots on first, you can't get your snow pants on. Or you could try. You could try, huh? You've been that guy? Just like, I can do it. It's going to, oh, you're trying to squeeze them over. And then finally, you my heart goes out to every kindergarten teacher in Canada who has to teach kids how to do this. So it's this planning, right? That's what executive functioning is. And that's what the problem we see. So in adults, again, some differences can't remain focused on a task for long periods. Difficulty prioritizing. Difficulty, how about this? following through and completing tasks, right? Missing appointments, missing deadlines because of time management. Oh, you know, I, sorry, I forgot about this or whatever. And the forgetfulness. Now, forgetfulness, I think we've talked about this before. I don't know if we talked about the podcast or just you and I chatting, but in order to remember something, you need to attend to it. So I need to listen to what you're saying and then store it in my memory. And that's how things get processed. If for whatever reason you're not attending to it, 
you won't remember it. So that could be because of ADHD, like poor attention, but sometimes it could be for other reasons. If I'm worried about something, I'm worried about like, oh my gosh, is it going to rain tomorrow? Do I need to take in the patio furniture, whatever? And, and then you just told me something and I didn't attend to it. Then it's like, or if you're depressed because you're like, oh my God, my life sucks. Uh, I'm so sad all the time. And then someone tells you something, you don't attend to it. So you don't do it. So in a, a forgetfulness is not always ADHD. And in in even in an older person doesn't mean you have Alzheimer's disease. But anyway. I just want to back up one thing and ask you, is there such a thing as ADHD that just shows up in adults and wasn't present in a kid? Or is it like it was with you as a kid, either present or dormant, and then got worse? As you have to have it as a kid. If you have ADHD-type symptoms as an adult and you never had as a kid, which would be pretty unlikely, that's also probably a recall bias where you're not remembering or your parents maybe aren't around. Maybe your parents have passed away, so no one's around to corroborate that you had ADHD as a kid. But no, if that's the case, if you see it as an adult, you need to think about maybe some other cause, maybe some medical cause or something like that. Or maybe you're a drug abuser or something like that. It could be other reasons. So hyperactivity, restlessness, verbosity, you know, those people who just talk all the time, don't stop, nonstop. People constantly active fidgeting, you know, those people, some people choose very active jobs for that reason, right? They want to be active all the time. And then impulsivity, you can imagine in kids, you know, maybe the worst thing as we talked about on the previous episode, impulsivity, okay, you run into the street without looking both ways, that would be dangerous. But otherwise, it's usually just kind of being annoying to your <laughs> parents and, and family members and friends. But impulsivity in adults, ending relationships, oh, this isn't working out, I forget it, you know, quitting jobs out of frustration. Yeah, just walking off the job, overreacting to things. And then you get things like driving violations, drug abuse, risky sexual behaviors, and things like that. And then the inattention is more like procrastination, difficulty making decisions, and then again, the time management and, and things like that. So it presents a bit differently, but definitely can be problematic in adulthood with some of these things. So I don't know if these resonate for you. I mean, our job isn't to diagnose you. If you think you have it, it would be some of those things. Mm -hmm. I see some things that I perhaps maybe connect with there. Yep. Right. We talked about with kids, there is this overdiagnosis happening, right? There is like a, a tendency to, oh, yeah, it's just probably that and we can fix this. Is that also happening with adults? Do we see overdiagnosis there? It is. And there's lots of criticisms about why it may be uh, overdiagnosed. There's a really great paper, which I'll link to, which talks about some of the reasons for this, that it might be overdiagnosed. So I'll give you a couple of them. They list about six in their article, and I'm going to go through them because it kind of touches on what we talked about before. One is you're diagnosing ADHD and overdiagnosing it because you're not correctly thinking about something else right? Some other psychiatric disease. We talked about anxiety, depression, bipolar, autism. You, you you probably have some friends who've been diagnosed with autism as an adult. They just missed, you know, when they yep, were a kid. Definitely. Hannah, Hannah Gadsby, who we talked about in the previous section, she was diagnosed with autism a few years ago. As an adult, yep. And so maybe that's what's going on and, and you're missing it. Maybe you have a learning disability. Do you have dyslexia that was just never picked up, right? So that's one possibility is we're, we're assuming that your inattention is due to ADHD when really, again, you might have anxiety, depression, autism, things like that. So that's not just overdiagnosis, that's incorrect diagnosis. Well. Misdiagnosis. This is a lot of what I'm getting at. It's actually a bit more misdiagnosis. The second one is also about misdiagnosis because it's failing to apply the necessary criteria that you have to have childhood onset. And really, uh, you, as I said, you need to have some corroboration. People just saying, oh yeah, I think I was a hyperactive kid, but really you need some collateral evidence, whether it is from parents, peers, family members, teachers, can you get your old report cards? But you're probably not going to be able to, you might be able to get your old report cards, but you're really going to go through that hassle of getting it. So you really need to confirm that childhood onset. So that's another reason why it might be misdiagnosed. Some people will say, you know, I think I have ADHD. And so their doctor will prescribe the ADHD medication. Then they think they improve on it. So they're like, oh, you see, I responded to the ADHD medication. That means I had ADHD. It's kind of reverse thinking, right? Like it's putting the cart before the horse. And so again, that doesn't really make any sense. Another thing that happens, and maybe we can talk about this in a second, is a lot of people have anxiety, especially in college and university, and they find things difficult or challenging, or they have a hard time focusing and paying attention. And so it's easier to kind of medicalize things 
and say, oh, you know, it's not that I'm having difficulty in university now. It's that, oh, I probably have ADHD. And so I need to, you know, something to help me with that, right? So it's medicalizing something that may just be, you know, maybe you just are having a hard time in university, right? Not everybody gets 100% in everything. I had read an article about this a few years ago when it was talking about, I mean, I don't know if they called it helicopter parenting, but like that level of parents helping with homework throughout high school. And then, you know, in university, some of these professors are like getting phone calls from parents and they're like, your child is an adult living on their own in a city away from you. I should not be getting these. Well, I heard he failed it. And so that also talked about a sort of a run on these type of Adderall, a different type of medications, because these kids were like, I don't understand, I can't focus. Well, it's because you've never really had the opportunity to work on your focus. Everything has always been, you know, and I, I like my kids, we always say they don't have a good imagination, right? They're all, it's like a lot of like, what can we do now? What do we do now? What should we do? And we see that in their writing. The writing is like the least imaginative, most literal stuff. Why? Because we never press them to use your imagination and go do this or write this. And so, yeah, that when you don't use something, you lose it. Yeah. Last two reasons why they think it may have been overdiagnosed is one is disability benefits, actually, because if you have a diagnosis of ADHD, a chronic medical condition, some adults may be able to receive benefits, right? The last one is kind of modern culture and medicalizing things which should be medicalized. We talked about this on a previous episode when we talked about ADHD before, how like a lot of kids who we would just have said, oh, they're just an active kid now become medicalized. And now that's translating now to adults, right? That, that was, you know, years ago was kids and now those kids are adults. And so maybe it's better just medicalize someone other than to say, yeah, I have some ADHD tendencies. Like I said, we all do. Like I daydream, I fidget with my legs and things like that when I'm sitting down. But does that mean I have ADHD? Probably not. This is the problem with your industry, buddy, huh? What happened to just weirdos? Remember weirdos? Can't have a weirdo anymore because nobody makes money off a weirdo. Everything's medicalized. I gave you the example in the previous episode about my handwriting, right, which is super bad. And now I'd have a fine motor difficulty diagnosed with that. You know, I don't know. Maybe I would get long-term disability benefits from that. I should look into <laughs> All that. Right. And the other thing, of course, is what you've rallied against uh, and uh, on this podcast is the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. Don't underestimate that, right? Think about them. They're thinking, yeah, okay, we got the kids – we got them kind of medicated. What's the next? Wait a minute. What about after they turn 18? What's going on there? I mean, it's a bit of a cynical view, but I don't think we can underestimate that. Yeah. Seniors, watch out. They're coming for you next, huh? And then obviously we cannot leave this discussion without talking about, you mentioned stimulants at the beginning and possible overuse of that or addiction to it. What is the lay of the land as far as kids, especially in college? Because that's when I first heard of these various, you know, Ritalin and Adderall and, and drugs that students, friends of mine, would just use around exam time. And I can't imagine that's gotten any less since I went to college. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised because I didn't really know anybody back then. But like you're saying, you know, people uh, now. Well, yeah, these were the med students, actually. It was people who were in med or pre-med and they had access somehow. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It depends on the studies you look at. In Canada, there's a, a study from the Canadian Center for Substance Abuse and Addiction from a couple of years ago. They estimate about 4 to 6% of Canadian post-secondary students of college and university will abuse stimulant medications. And we talk about Adderall, just so we know, Ritalin is a short-acting stimulant and Adderall is a long-acting stimulant. Adderall is the brand name for a type of long-acting stimulant. But now I think when they're using it like as a term, they're just kind of like saying Adderall. It may not be exactly Adderall. It may be another long-acting one. But in general, if someone were to be abusing these, they'd probably use a long-acting one because it lasts longer. But in the States, it's variable. Some studies say it's between 7 to 30%. In one study, they surveyed a bunch of university students, and one in three said they had abused or taken Adderall, like non-prescription, at least once. And so what else has the research shown in this? Students who basically think that they're not harmful, right, who are not worried about taking them, take them more. I think that's a pretty obvious uh, finding. Interestingly, and this is a lot of stuff from the US, some research has shown that the people who are at risk for using these prescription stimulants, like 
inappropriately are males. I don't think anything I'm going to tell you is surprising. Males, members of Greek organizations. Ah, uh, why do you got to take the Greeks down here for Turdy Circle, right? Just so people know, because people listen to us all over the world, these types of organizations are quite uncommon in Canada. Really, fraternities and sororities are very uncommon, whereas in the U.S., very prevalent. Students who consume other substances recreationally, including alcohol, and students who think they're invincible, which is basically yeah, every, single every single person yeah. in their, in their <laughs> 20s. When you ask them, a lot of them will say that they use it to enhance their marks, right? That's what your friends were doing. But research suggests that people who use these stimulants actually have lower grades compared to those who do not use them. Way to so, go, dum-dums. But, but that's a bit of a reverse. Maybe those people have lower grades, so they're trying to do something, right, to get their grades up. And maybe the high-achieving people, they high-achieve anyway, so they don't feel a need to do it. But it's probably those people who are just below the high-achievers, right, who are trying to get up there, but it doesn't actually help. And of course, there are certain risks to it, right? There's with overdose, you could have heart problems. It does actually decrease your appetite. It can lead to weight loss. <laughs> I mean, that might be a sales pitch for some people. This that's is the, the problem, problem, right? Yeah. And it also causes insomnia. But in these situations, that's why you're taking it, right? Yeah, you got to stay up and study. Exactly. And then there are some concerns about mixing it with alcohol, right? Because if you're taking a stimulant, that keeps you awake. And alcohol is a depressant. It depresses your nervous system. So what they're worried about is you take the stimulant, you drink lots of alcohol, and then you don't realize how much alcohol you're taking in. And then the stimulant wears off. And then you're like, you know, passing out comatose type thing. I can hear 20-year-olds rolling their eyes as they listen to this. This is so – like, you know, when you were 20, you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm going to be <laughs> – I'm going to rule the world one day. But yeah, obviously, real concerns. You know, you can see overdose. These stimulants are in the same kind of family as amphetamines and cocaine. So you can get – high blood pressure, heart rate, agitation, psychosis, you know, with overdoses. And that's the problem, which uh, I don't even like it when my own patients who I prescribe something for, if I see them like a couple months later in a follow-up and they're like, well, we decide to decrease the dose or this, we decide to increase the dose on your own. I'm like, you can't do that. Like you don't know the potential side effects of even a small dose increase or decrease. And, and more importantly, I wrote that prescription. So I'm responsible for this. So you can't be, you know, moving things around. How do these students know how much Adderall to take or not to take, right? And they maybe some of them think, oh, uh, if a little was good, a lot might be even better, right? But you're right. It's tough to know what to do about this. It, it's definitely a factor that's, I mean, some of these studies go back 10 or 15 years. This is not something new, as you were saying, because you had this experience in college. So I think it's, I think you have to go back to the overdiagnosis and people have to make sure they're diagnosing it correctly. And then second of all, I think maybe some of this messaging about, you know, it does not improve your marks. Like you think it's doing something, but it doesn't. I think that's probably the way around it, but it is a big problem. Well, I'll just mention, just before we wrap up, I'll mention something that, you know, if you suspect yourself of having ADD, ADHD, potentially, I know that, you know, I was sitting at home in my late 20s, early 30s. I was back, you know, living with my parents. I remember my father's in the kitchen doing something. This documentary comes on and it's Rick Green and Patrick McKenna. Now, both of these gentlemen are, you know, Canadian comedy legends and it's Rick Green's documentary. It's called ADD and Loving It. It's a little dated now. It's from 2009. But he started going over the various symptoms and then the sort of manifestations, what it means if you have ADD, what, if you have this, how it shows up in your life. And I was like, I started getting red in the face as though somebody's talking directly to me. And my father was behind me. And I was like, is my father picking up on this? Because now my father's going to know that I have ADD. My dad doesn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't paying attention to the TV, but I just felt so unbelievable. You know, people say I felt seen, I felt heard as so many people did about Bo Burnham special, for example. This is the thing that I felt like the most seen ever. I was like, oh, this is unbelievable. But then he's he's been so successful. But he said, my success has always been like with short, I could write sketches, but I could never write a book. I've been trying to write a book for years. And I'm, you know, I'm going through hell with my own book writing, keeping all these ideas. You know, it's about 300 pages. I just can't manage it. And my editor knows my book better than I do. Anytime like focus was required, always a huge challenge. Only when the deadline was the next day could he really get into 
do it. And that's always been me. I don't, I self-imposed deadlines, buddy, you might as well just tear that up, throw it in the garbage. There's no such thing as a self I need a hard deadline. And then I could, as much as I try, how many years I've been trying to get things done well before a deadline, there's just no way. And I, it just always bothered me. And I didn't want to get addicted to those pills, but I was tempted many times to try Adderall or Ritalin or whatever was around because I was like, God knows I need the focus. But actually, when the deadline or the exam was coming up, I got pretty focused. So that was the other reason why I didn't. Well, that's the thing. Like, does it really interfere with your life at all? That's what you have to. It's like we talked about in the previous episode. If it interferes with your life, then you want to do something about it. If not, you just may be on that spectrum. I don't mean the autism spectrum. I mean the spectrum of, you know, ADHD features and having full-blown ADHD. We think Ali may have ADHD, and yeah. this has basically been his medical appointment, and Ali will be getting a bill in the mail soon. In his second conclusion, I think most people listening can probably deduce that this podcast would never have happened, would it not be for Dr. Asif Doja, who's much more organized and timely and has got his stuff together. But uh, Everybody remember know, that. He said it. He just said it. I said it. Ali, what do you got going on? Anything in the couple, the next couple of weeks? Well, you know, as you said, I'm in Newfoundland. So in the next few months, I'll be on an episode of Hudson and Rex filmed in St. John's, Newfoundland. A few other comedy shows coming up. I'll be at Just for Laughs, hosting a show at Just for Laughs. Yeah, I got a few things happening. Standupali.com. That's where you got to go. You got to go check it out. There's, there's a few things, particularly around Canada and stuff that'll be aired on television. And just to give you guys a preview, we don't often preview our upcoming episodes, but we will. Coming up this month, we will have some reviews of shows. We're going to be reviewing the new season of Ted Lasso. Apple TV has been kind enough to give us some screeners. So we're going to be reviewing that. We're also attempting to review Never Have I Ever, which is coming up with a season two on Netflix. Netflix, you guys have been a bit hesitant about giving us the screeners. So <laughs> we want those screeners. Give us those screeners. We really want those, but that's coming up and maybe some more interviews coming up. We won't mention who, but we have a few interviews potentially coming up in the next couple of weeks in the fire. Sounds good. And Asif, you are a doctor, but are you their doctor? I am not their doctor, and I'm definitely not your doctor, despite my joke before. So please remember, medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And by your, I mean yours too, Ali. Yes. They're not to be considered medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Ali's going to make his appointment after we get off the line. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.